blessing. So it behooves us to get as close to God as we can. There is no refuge in this world. The only safe place I know of is the name of the Lord. It's a strong tower. It's a righteous run into it every second. We better build our hopes and aspirations around the church. Second Kings 19, beginning at verse number 10. Thus shall ye speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God in whom thou trustest deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations Bible. Hopefully we can get it clearly and understand it. Amen. 
remember Paul. I'm going to preach on something that is essential to your salvation. I'm going to preach on something that you have to get. You have to receive this message. And if not for me, then somebody. But this is a part of the gospel that is essential to our salvation and our faith. And if you get this understanding, in my opinion, nothing will anchor you in the church stronger than a revelation of the oneness of God. When you see, when you understand, when you know, it is a bedrock, a buttress that you can always lean on and be strengthened by. In a crazy world, you can always say, well, I may not have a lot of answers, but I know this here on earth, the Lord our God is one Lord. I may not know which direction to go in some things in my life, but this, i got strength. This, I've got down path. So, amen, we want to look at the word of the Lord today, and hopefully you will be blessed. We all will be. Several years ago, a couple years ago, I heard a little story. I don't know whether it's true or not. I, I was told it to be true. Then I found out later that Jerry Flower told it, so I don't know. Probably not. If it had just been Paul Harvey, I'd believe it. But anyway, the story is this. Whether it's true or not, it has a good moral to it. So, uh, an old man, a child was born. They were anxious to hear what he would say. A lifetime ambition had been fulfilled, a lifetime desire, and so they said, Well, Dad, what do you think about the ocean? He says, You know, I thought it's going to be bigger than that. <laughs> well, let me tell you what his problem was. If he was an average sized person, he was about six foot tall. From that height, if you're standing on the shore, you can only see about six miles out of the beach. And then the curvature of the earth takes the horizon away from you. And you 
kept sea fast about six miles. And that's really not very far. We have a lot of lakes that are six miles in diameter. It, you know, if that's all the ocean you can see, it isn't very big. I've been, my dad had a boat when I was a boy, and we went out in the Pacific, out of Morro Bay a lot. And uh, you can see farther than six miles if the object is large, like a ship. You can see it far away, but it's what they call in naval talk, hull down. You can't see the waterline. You may see the upper works, the, the mast, the, the staff, so forth, but you can't see where the water hits that hull because it's over the horizon. And so you can only see six miles if you're about six feet tall, less for some, but if you're about six feet tall, you can see about six miles, and then that's as far as you can see. Everybody with me? About a couple of years ago, I went to India, and uh, I hope nobody takes umbrage to this, because I am one of the kindest people you'll ever meet. I wouldn't take anybody's feelings for anything, but India is a dreadful you're from India, I know why you're over here, bless God. I understand. It just, and, and the people are nice, but there's so many people there that all, everything is maxed out. The air is filthy. You can't drink the water. If you take a shower in India, you better hum in the shower. You better keep your mouth shut. You get, you get cholera or amoebic dysentery, and you're going to be dead in about five days, and you're going to be glad you died. You get sick. And so it's everything. All the service streets are strained. You know, you, and I don't want this to be crude, but you, you, there's, everywhere you go, there's people going to the bathroom. They, have, they don't have a bathroom. They don't have a house. You're driving through their bathroom. It's just dreadful place. And uh, when you brush your teeth, you bottled water. I'm not joking in any case. And I'm not running the people of India down. I'm just saying that there's just so many that everything you want to use has already been used by 5,000 other folks. And so, uh, and, and the food. I don't like curry. I thought I did until I went there, then I found out I don't. I like a little curry. I don't like a whole bunch, and they put a whole bunch on their food, and uh, after about four or five days, I was sick of curry, and still am. So, uh, I mean, they put on everything. They put on their eggs in the morning. I, I was tasting curry in the water. I mean, it was just everywhere. And the bottled water, I mean, too. And uh, it just, you know, nothing about it I enjoyed. So when we got on the jet to come home, it was not the saddest day in my life. We flew from Trivandrum. To Singapore. We flew from Singapore to Tokyo on our way home. And uh, we landed in the Tokyo airport about 7 o'clock in the morning. And we found a McDonald's and it was open. And I'm not a big fan of McDonald's. I can eat there if I'm hungry. But I gotta be hungry. Not my first choice. I don't drive across town to get to McDonald's, I'll promise you that. And, uh, but at that Tokyo airport, I'd been eating curry for seven days and bologna sandwiches. And uh, we went in there, and, and the egg muffin tasted a little funny, but I ate it anyway, bless 
God is. And God's America. I was heading home. Thank you, Jesus. Anyway, we got on a jet at the airport in Tokyo. Big, beautiful Malaysian Air Airlines. Beautiful 747. And uh, settled into our seat. And I got a window seat. Because I want to look at something when I'm on the airplane. Did you catch that? I want something to look at while I'm on the airplane. Caught that, didn't you? Good. Hallelujah. Uh, so I got a window seat, and in a few minutes we were taxiing out to the active runway, and pretty soon the plane started its takeoff roll. I've already told you I'm always surprised when airplanes get off the ground, but they do. And uh, we lifted off the runway. And in just a few seconds, we were out over the Pacific, located right on the ocean. And uh, at least the one I took off from was. And in a few minutes, in just a few minutes, we were at cruising altitude, which is 39,000 feet. That's a little over seven miles for you that went to public school. It's a long ways above the earth, high. And uh, from seven miles, are you with me today? Everybody with me? Is everybody with me today?
Can I start right here, close at hand? I found this out when I built a church. A BTU is a British thermal unit. It's a measure of temperature. Well, anyway, you can look it up. You buy an air conditioner, and it's measured in BTUs. If you buy a heater, it's measured in BTUs. Uh, the British set this standard a long time ago, and most of the world has accepted it, certainly the Western world, and that's if you if you buy a want to go down to buy an air conditioner, you'll have they'll ask you how many BTUs you want, and you have to tell them twelve thousand, twenty-four thousand. Twelve thousand is a ton, air twenty-four thousand obviously is a two-ton, and that's how we measure the cooling capacity. I I have a church of pretty strong will people, and I had I have a man in my church that speaks Lincoln Indian. I have people in my church that speak in Tagalog, the language of the Philippines. Uh, my daughter spoke a little French. She took that in school. Uh, I have some people that speak Spanish. I had somebody up there that spoke English. And I had all of them say in their native tongue, keep your hands off the thermostat. And I said, everybody should understand that. I don't care what language you speak. Surely we blanketed the field with all these languages. Keep your hands off the thermostat. People are under the impression that the farther you go, you know, in the cooling, the faster it's cool off. No, it won't do it. The, the, the air conditioners are rated at a certain amount of cooling, and that's all they're going to do. If you set it at 60, it's not going to cool any faster than if you set it at 70. It'll get colder in time, but it's not going to get cooler any faster because air conditioners are rated at a certain BTU, and that a BTU is the amount of heat it takes to heat up one pound of water, one degree. One pound of water, one degree. I don't know how much heat it would take to heat up those billions of cubic miles of water I blew over. Million, excuse me. I don't know how much heat it would take, but it's mind-boggling how much heat, how many... What does a cubic mile of water weigh? A lot. You have trouble picking up a five-gallon bucket of it, I know that. Pretty heavy. And a cubic mile. My pickup is not warm enough the North Pacific. That's what I want to say. Now we're back to preaching. Hallelujah. God help your little empty head if you think it is. You know there's a political agenda in almost everything that the political world does. There's more than just meets the eye. This isn't just an attempt to save the world. There, there's an attempt to change the way we live, our lifestyle. There's an agenda. Amen. Anyway, anyway, I was flying across the North Pacific over all that water. And as far as you could see was the water. You stood there, sit there, and looked out the window, and just looked like you could see almost forever that North Pacific. And you know, said so that's just a little bitty patch here. That so wasn't the whole North Pacific, that was a little 200 mile wide patch. Well, an ocean is 8,000 miles wide. A lot of water, a lot of water. Endless, endless stretches. It goes, it seems like forever. And we all know that it's the globe that does it, but it seems like look and look, hour after hour, 600 miles an hour, and there it was, the North Pacific. 
Now, I'm saying that to say that the old man that can only see six miles, not going necessarily blind or a fool, but it's, it's perspective. From his perspective, that's as far as he could see. But I was up in a 747 at seven miles high. I could see a lot farther than he could. Not because my eyes are better or that I'm smarter or something. It's just I was I was at an altitude where the, the, the stretch of the Atlantic, the Pacific, was much greater than where he was at on the, on the shoreline. And so we both saw the same motion that he was saying, man, that's kind of disappointing. That wasn't much, I wasn't expecting bigger than that. And I'm thinking, boy, I don't think I'll, this will ever end. I don't know that this ocean will ever stop. It just hour after hour after hour after hour, water as far as you can see, same ocean, different perspective. Same ocean, different perspective. Now, all that's past, now we're going to get to the Bible. Hallelujah. The Bible tells us that Ben-Hadad, king of Assyria, king of, Syria, of Damascus in Syria, decided he was going to in, invade uh, Samaria King Ahab, and so he sent a letter to King Ahab, and he said, your wives and your daughters and your sons and everything you've got is mine. Ahab said, okay, come get it. It's yours. Then he sent another letter and said, and I'm going to send some servants down, and they're going to go through your servants' houses, and everything they see they want, they're going to get that. And Ahab went to his servants and said, what do you think about this? They said, we'd rather fight than do that. So, then Hadad invaded, uh, invaded Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, with his army, and he had a big army. And uh, they met in battle, and, and the children of Israel under Ahab defeated the Syrian army under Ben-Hadad, and they fled back to Damascus. And when they got there, his advisors said, let me tell you what to do. Let's, let's, next year, let's build the same army we had this year, man for man, horse for horse, uh, arrow for arrow, spear for spear, sword for sword, build the same army and we'll go back. But with this time, we won't fight in the hills. We'll fight in the valley because their gods are the gods of the hills. And when we get to the valley, we can win. That's in the Bible, you know. It really is. And the prophet came to Ahab and said, I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to destroy the Assyrian army because they said I was the God of the hills. And I'm going to let them know I'm not just the God of the hills, I'm the God of the valley. They made the mistake of challenging the power of God. They made the mistake of assuming that God was a small God when he wasn't a small God. Amen. In our scripture reading, in 722, Ashurbanipal came out of Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, altogether different. From Nineveh, which is close to where Baghdad is at now. You know, the same folks are still fighting on the same land. Anyway, uh, he came with his army and besieged Samaria and took Samaria and gathered all of the northern tribes of Israel away into Assyrian captivity, 722 B.C. And this, of course, is where the northern tribes were taken, and they never came back. They never were restored. The Assyrian Empire sent some people down to colonize where they used to live, and there were still some Jews left, and in time they intermingled, and that's where the, that's where the uh, people of the well of Samaria, uh, help me Jesus, the Samaritans, where they came from. 
They were a mixture. That's why the Jews looked down at our nose. They saw us half-breeds. They weren't real Jews. They're not really with us. And, of course, the Samaritans hated the Jews because they were hated by the Jews. And that trouble is still with us today, as it was in the days of Jesus' time. So that's where the Samaritans came from. But they, the northern tribes were taken into Assyria. Of course, this is a lot of doctrines and beliefs have come from that. They think the northern tribes were the children of Israel wandered around. I'm not making this up. Through, I'm going to preach in a little while. Just stay with me. Wandered around through the Europe, and they end up being the tribes that settled in Britain, England, the Angles and the Jutes and the Saxons, Isaac's son, get it? And they, so the British were really Jews when they came to America. There's no British Israelism, by the way. And when the, the British came to America, then our heritage is Jewish. So really, we're the real Jews, and we have all the privileges and blessings that come with being Jews. And, and it's the goofiest doctrine you can think of, but there you are. They went up into Assyria, and they lost their identity in the Assyrian kingdom. They intermingled with the people, and pretty soon the Jews that had lived in Samaria were gone. That's what happened. Then later, uh, Ashurbanipal's son, Sennacherib, Shalmanes, excuse me, Sennacherib came down, and he attacked Jerusalem. And this is where our scripture comes in. This is where... The, you, you're familiar with the story. They were besieging the cities around Jerusalem, and they sent Rabshakeh down to talk to the people that were on the walls of Jerusalem. And, and Rabshakeh said, don't think that, that Hezekiah is going to be able to save you. Don't think that your king can help you. That's not going to happen. And look at all the people we've destroyed. We're driven, we've dried up their rivers with the soles of our feet. Their kings were not able to stand against us. They prayed to their gods, and it did no good. They offered sacrifices to their gods, and they still got defeated. Don't think your gods are going to be able to help you. It's not going to happen. Everybody with me? Later, when they heard that the Ethiopians were going to come and help Jerusalem, that's when the letter was sent. They sent the letter to Hezekiah and said, don't think he's going to be able to withstand us. Look at all the kings we've defeated. Look at all the, look at all the people we've destroyed. They were praying to their gods too, and it didn't help them a bit. And that's when Hezekiah went into the house of the Lord. And he opened that letter up and set it on the altar and said, here it is, God, read it for you. You know, God can read. You know that, don't you? Oh, yeah, he reads emails, too. He reads your texts. Oh, yeah. He sees the pictures you send, too. Don't think because it's electronic, God can't see it. He's bigger than you think he is. Smarter, too. So he went into the house of God and opened it up and spread it out. Said, here it is, God. And God sent the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, down there. And he says, you tell Hezekiah, the, the daughters of Jerusalem are shaking their heads at you. Let me tell you something, Hezekiah. The army of Sennacherib will never come to this city. They'll never throw a bank around it. There'll never be an arrow shot at Jerusalem. Your army's not going to, I'm going to take care of this myself. He didn't challenge you, Hezekiah. He challenged me. If he had said you weren't able, you might have lost the battle. But he said, I wasn't able. If he had said the walls of Jerusalem were insufficient to save you, then I might have let this go. But he said, I wasn't able to defeat him. And I'm going to show Sennacherib and the armies of Assyria that I can defeat them after all. They'll never shoot an arrow. 
feel sorry for the poor Assyrians because they were pagans. It's the way of the pagan. This is how they operate. This is their modus operandi, their MO. This is what they do when they want to have them a god. They go out in the woods. Now, don't, don't get worried on me, preachers. They go out in the woods, and they cut a tree down. And with a third of it, they make lunch. With a third of it, they warm the house. I'm not making this up. This is in the scripture. And with a third of it, they make a god. And they put eyes on their God, and they put ears on their God, they put a mouth on their God, and a nose, and they put arms and legs, but they know those eyes can't see, and they know those ears can't hear, and they know that it can't walk around, they know the hands can't help them, the, the, the mouth can't speak, they, it was just a tree a few minutes ago, so they cut it down. How can you have confidence in a God that you made? I think it's supposed to be the other way around, isn't it? God's supposed to make us. You know how you can always tell a pagan god one way? Is like the Greeks and the Romans. Their gods were terrible. They were liars and cheats and rapists and murderers and guilt, greedy and fussy and all. You know, they, their gods were like them. They made their gods like they were. Our god's not like us. Oh, no, he's higher than He's lofty. He knows more. He can do more than we can. You have to keep things in context. These were people that had gone to the house of their gods and bowed down to an image they had made out of stone or wood, and that image never spoke. It never spoke. It never was able to help. When Elijah had this little meeting with the, the prophets of Baal, amen, we're going to find out where the, who the real God is. We're going to find out. We're going to decide, let God answer my fire. He said, you guys can take off first. And they started shouting and running around, cutting themselves, praying that their God would answer. And they spent all day in their worship service, and their God never answered a word. About the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah had his altar rebuilt, and he took a bullet and he slew it, and he had water poured on it. And he just said, I think it's 67 words, God, you know I'm your prophet, you're the God of Israel, and I want you to show these people, I want you to answer them. And fire came down from heaven. Fire came down from heaven and licked up the sacrifice and the stones and the water. And people said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The real God can do something. The real God can answer. The real God can move. And these people have bowed their knees all their lives to a God that couldn't do anything. They've never seen the real God. They've spent their time up in Assyria. They've whipped all those countries round about. When they come down to Jerusalem, they ran into something they weren't used to. If you can catch this analogy, they had their feet on the shore. And all their gods were just right out there six miles. Mm, God's not very big if that's all you can see of him. You have a God that can't speak, that can't save, that can't deliver, that can't strengthen you, can't bless you. You ain't got much of a God. Hallelujah. You need to meet the real God. Hallelujah. Amen. The real God's a lot bigger than six miles. The real God. You get up in this 747 of Revelation and start looking out the window, and you'll find out God is as far as you want to see. There's gods on both sides. 
So it's almost pitiful. It's boring. Pagans out there cutting themselves, praying to a God that could never heal. They carved out of stone a few weeks ago. How goofy. Goofy. Learn that mother thing. Goofy. don't have revelation. It's not that they're goofy. We don't have to go back thousands of years to see people like this. There are people that all they think about of God is the baby in the manger. That's their image of God. That's their concept of God. If you say God, that's what they think of. You talk about God, they think about the little deal that hang around their neck with Jesus hanging on a cross for a little crucifix. That, that's about as far as it goes. Honey, I got news for you. You got your feet in the sand. God's a lot bigger than the baby in the manger. God's a lot bigger than the crucifix. Oh, yeah. My God is, you get your eye on real God, the real God. If you can forget your, your little humanistic views and see what God really is, if you can get a revelation, you're going to find out God is great then. My God is great then. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. You know, you, you look out the left, and there's Alpha out there as far as you can see. And then you look out the right, there's Omega, as far as you can see. The beginning, the end. You got your feet in the sand, you don't see much. But you get up to 747, it's seven miles high, and God's great big. Are you with the analogy I'm trying to make today? Amen. Amen. When you really see how God is, amen, he's endless. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The root and the offspring of David. He's the father and the son of David. How's that possible? Well, it's not with us, but we're not dealing with a human God. We're not dealing with a God that has human limitations. We're not dealing with a God. And then somebody spoke it last night. He has all power. He's our mission. He has all knowledge. He's our, he's our mission. He has all power. I'm, I'm omnipotent. He has, he's everywhere. It's omnipresent. He has capabilities and powers. We can't. This poor world, the problem with the world, even the religious world today, is they see the small God. They don't see the big God. They lack revelation. Amen. They see the small God. They limit him all the time. I read a book a while back called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's a great book. I didn't believe a word of it, but it's a great book. Very interesting to read. It's written by Jewish rabbi, whose name starts with K, I can't remember it right now, but uh, good book. And in this book, he starts talking about Job. And he says, there's three great things about Job that you have to believe are true. First is that Job was perfect, and that's true. He was called perfect three times by God. Can't argue with that. Perfect. Then you have to believe that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Have to believe that there's some form of equity in God. This is exactly what Abraham did when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, God, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? Wait a minute, God. Aren't you fair? Are you going to do that, God? You're going to let the righteous suffer along with the wicked? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We all believe that God is fair, don't we? Amen. So God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. That's what it should be. And we also believe that God has all power. And in this book, this rabbi said, you cannot believe all three of those things at the same time. 
friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, his buddies, his pals, they chose to believe that Job had it coming. They didn't want to think that God was weak. They didn't want to think that God was unfair. So they blamed Job. They said the curse causeless does not come. And when Job defended his integrity, they saw that as an attack upon God. If you want to know what Job's about, if you had trouble reading Job and understanding it, just keep that in your mind when you read it. It'll, it'll make a lot more sense. They attacked Job because he did not accept his punishment and did not acknowledge the fairness of God. They said, you're, you're, not, you're, not, you're not treating God right. You're accusing God of unfairness, Job. That's what that's all about. Job said, what have I done that you haven't done? Where's the widow and the orphan that I've sent away, turned away? Where, where's the people that I've mistreated? Show me where I've done wrong. The writer of the book decided to say that God doesn't have all the power we think he does. That he couldn't Why don't we let him? I believe Job was perfect. I believe God has all power. I believe he's fair. I think where we misunderstand the, the book is our concept of what reward and punishment is. We're so earth-oriented that we, we can't get away from the blessings to us. I've got money in my pocket, so God loves me. I'm broke, so God hates me. It has nothing to do with it, honey. When this earth is not where we better use our standards of measurement because somebody seems to be blessed doesn't mean they're blessed and because somebody's sleeping under a bridge doesn't mean they're wrong amen we better get away from equating the blessings of god with how things are happening on this earth if you don't have a dime and you're saved you're a blessed you're a child of god amen the hand of the lord is on you and you ought to be able to come to church and rejoice and if you've got more money than bill gates and you're not a child of god god have mercy on your poor soul well everything in this earth is transitory everything you see everything you touch is passing away everything including you is not going to be here in a few days some things go quick you cut flowers down a couple of days later they're dead and gone some things last a long time. Cement floor that this building is built upon it may last 10,000 years, but there will be a day when it goes back to the sand that it came from. Everything you can see is passing. Don't plan on this world being the place of your abode. Don't build your hopes on this life. Oh, no, you better put your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot corrupt and where thieves cannot break through and steal. We better fall in love with heaven and God and forget about this earth. I know people quit church so they can become a doctor. I'm sure they died rich. They went to hell. What's your money going to do you in eternity? Our little 70 years is so short and so insignificant. When you see the endless scope of eternity, we better fall in love with God. We better fall in love with the church and righteousness and forget this world. And I know we've got to live. I know we've got to pay our bills. But my ambitions are not here. I'm not running for office. I'm so sick of this goofy idea that we're going to take control of the earth. What, what kind of nonsense is this? Take control of the earth. I'm not running for office. I don't even want to meet politicians. I like honest folks. When we built our new building, the mayor called up and said, I'd like to come and welcome you folks to the community. I said, we've been here a lot longer than you. We'll be here after you're gone. 
What do you mean welcome us? It's just a political stop. It's just somewhere to look for votes and donations. I've got time for that. Amen. My hopes are not in this earth. My plans are not built around what's in this earth. Amen. I'm going to keep my eyes on heaven. I want to hear well done one of these days. And if I get that job done, then I live a successful life. We know the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man fared sumptuously every day. He had everything that money could buy. Lazarus was a beggar that had sores, probably from malnutrition, we know now, probably from vitamin deficiency. He said at the gate, he said, all I want is to drop something on the floor and just sweep it my way. I'll take what falls from the table. I'm not asking for the best. I'm asking for the stuff you don't even Good, probably had a Rolex watch, a couple Cadillacs. Beautiful homes, nice clothes, the things that money can provide. And there's not a one of us that would choose to be Lazarus, and you know it. I like my king size bed. I like my nice car. I like my nice home. I like of America. I'm not wanting to be a beggar, and you're not either. And in this story, everything on earth would choose to be the rich man up to the point of death. But when they died, the rich man went to hell. You believe in hell, don't you? The Bible speaks of it. You believe in heaven, you got to believe in hell. Amen. Up to the moment of death, we all would have chosen to be the rich man. But when they died, that's when we want to change. Well, you don't get to change at death. If you want to change, you better do it now while you're alive. If you want to hear well done, you better do it now while you've got a chance. You're not going to get to the day of judgment and say, Lord, do I get a second chance? No second chances. Right now is your opportunity to live for God. Are you listening, kids? Hey, Amen. You better put your hopes and aspirations and dreams and plans on above, on above, because this world's going to be, one way or another, it's going to end. We gotta live for God. We gotta live for God. And I don't know how I got off on that. Oh yeah, why bad things happen to good people. Plenty of time. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, I haven't got where I want to go yet. The friends of Job accused him of being evil. Job defended himself, and then they said he was attacking God. The writer of the book says God couldn't help him. He, God can't do everything. I choose to believe we misunderstand what reward and punishment is. We don't look back very real clear. We're too earth-oriented and too success-oriented and too health-oriented and wealth-oriented to really see, you know, if I can just make it through, if I'm a beggar and I'm saved, if I'm a beggar and I'm saved, I was all right. Amen, God? And so it's easy to misunderstand this. It's easy to underestimate God. The writer of the book said God couldn't help him. You know what he was doing? He's standing on the shore saying, God, you're right out there. He's just six miles away. God can do anything he wants, honey. My God can do anything he wants. 
There is no disease he can't heal. There's no situation he can't ameliorate. There's no problem in your life that he doesn't have the solution to. Don't let the devil tell you there's no way out. There's always a way out if you're a child of God. Don't let the devil tell you that if there's no hope, there's always hope when it comes to God. Amen. There's nothing like having hope, brother. Nothing like having hope. This is a grim world when you have no hope. lost loved ones, and they, they weren't in church. There's nothing worse than that. Nothing, because your hope is gone. Amen. And when you have hope, you know it's not, it's not goodbye. It's just see you in a little while. We believe that, don't we? We believe that. I mean, we have a great big God. Don't let the devil limit his abilities in your life. Amen. Look at the situation. I mean, I, I, there's no, oh, there's always a remedy in God. There's always a way that God can fix the problem in your life. Don't Estimate God. Don't stand on the shore and say, God, not very big. I don't get up in the 747 and say, man, my God is able to do all things. That whatever the need is, he can meet it because he's a great big God. The problem with the religious world is all of their doctrines have a tendency to limit God. Even the doctrine of the Trinity it was came about because people could not understand the real relationship of God. So I want to try to help you today. The God of the universe that created Adam and Eve, that said, let there be light, and there was light. The one that separated the light from the darkness, called one day and the other night. The one that drew a line on the earth and told the ocean, you can go this far, no further. The one that flung the stars and the sun and the moon in space. Yeah, it was God that did it. You know why you can only see one half of the moon? I read this the other day. Because the orbit of the moon around the earth and the turning of the moon on its axis is precisely the same time. And it never varies. So as the earth, as the moon goes around the earth, it also turns on its axis. So you only see one part of the moon. And you, you live to be a hundred. Not so much as another foot of the moon because that is precise. You know, God doesn't do things haphazard. When God said let it be, it was, and he said it was good, it was good. God knows how an orderly mind, an orderly mind created this world. A divine design made this world, made you. Evolution is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It's otherwise smart people believe that stupidity. And it, it's, you start looking into it, and it makes no sense whatsoever. We didn't evolve out of cockroach or whatever they're saying now. Amen. We, God said, let there be, and it was. Amen. We're a product. The, the psalmist said, we're beautifully, wonderfully made. The way your body works proves divine creation. The way you function as a human being proves divine creation. Just go home and raise your little eyelids and look at your eye in the mirror and know that that didn't just happen. An eyeball didn't wash up on some primordial shore and somebody stuck it in his head and it started seeing. That's not the way it worked. this as a theory, they teach it as a fact, and nothing could be farther from the truth. We have a 
great big God. He was able to make us. We have a great big God. He's able to make a world that was self-sustaining. Amen. It purifies itself. It cleanses itself. The plants make oxygen and, and takes in carbon dioxide. The, the animals take in oxygen and put out carbon dioxide. It's a self-fulfilling system, and it cleanses itself, and it's wonderful, and, and it took the hand of God to do it. Don't limit God. And the reason people have the Trinity is they couldn't see one being able to do all these things. They, they underestimated the power of God is how this came about in the first place. God that created the universe, that spirit that nobody has ever seen, you know why you can't see God? Because he's not made of atoms and molecules. Guy in our town that used to pastor the Capstone Cathedral. He sent out a little pamphlet, and in it he had pictures of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> you ever seen that? I tell one of my office, I'm keeping it as a memento or keepsake. <laughs> and it shows a couple standing there in this church church with this big yellow flash above their head. And he said, Look at the Holy Ghost hovering over these people. up my camera setting. <laughs> Taking the Holy Ghost didn't even know it. You can't take pictures of the Holy Ghost. He doesn't have molecules. So God is a spirit and no man has seen God at any time. We know that because your human eyes can only pick up things that are made of substance, of mass, if I can go back to the other day. Amen. And if it doesn't have made of atoms and molecules, you more than you can see love. Does love exist? Oh yeah, it exists, but you can't take a picture of it. You may be able to take a picture of its effects. And you may be able to see how, how what it does if you fall in love. Like wedding pictures, for example. But you can't take pictures of love. It lacks corporality. So the God that you can't see with the human eye, no man has ever seen. That God. Now listen to me. This is the essence of the revelation. That God overshadowed the Virgin Mary about 2,000 years ago and caused her to become a child, not by natural generation, but by divine generation. And the child that was born of her in Bethlehem, that was laid in a manger that was wrapped in swaddling clothes, well, for the first time and for the last time, listen to me, in the history of the world, we had God manifest in flesh. It was the incarnation. The invisible became visible. God became flesh. And that flesh had its, it, you could touch the flesh. It was not divine flesh. It was made of Mary. I got a daughter-in-law and a daughter that's going to have a baby. That's the way Jesus came into the world. He had flesh. He did have corporality. He had blood. He could got he got tired. He got hungry. He wept. That baby that was born was the miracle of the ages. It was God manifest in the flesh. This wasn't an image. This wasn't a statue. This wasn't a pagan deity. Oh no, this was God. 
And that child came to do something. He came to be the Passover sacrificial lamb. And he did a lot of other things on the way to the cross, but that was his fundamental goal. Amen. He didn't have to heal anybody to do what, but he did, and thank God for it. But his goal was to die for the sins of the world. His goal was that he might be that propitiatory sacrifice that would die for the sins of the world. And we saw him. And, and people can't see how God could do all these things. How can God be his own father? Don't be crazy. It's, it's impossible for us. But we're not dealing with God. Get off the beach. Get your feet out of the sand and get up into 747 and see what God can do. You know, he can be the high priest and the lamb slain all at the same time. He can be the first and the last all at the same time. He doesn't quit being the first when he becomes the last. And so that sacrificial God came into this world and, and, the, and the body came from Mary, but the spirit that dwelt in him God. The spirit that dwelt in that baby was God. That's why Jesus could receive their worship. He was God. That's why his words could change the laws of Moses. And he did change the laws of Moses. It hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I said to you, if you look on a woman's left hand, if you commit adultery with all already in your heart, he raised the bar. Amen. Just good acting wasn't good enough. You had to have a good heart. Just doing right wasn't good enough. You had to have your heart clean. Amen. He was able to change even the laws of God because he was God manifest in the flesh. And his people, the people of his world didn't see that. Amen. One time they took up the roof off of a building. And a man had palsy. They dropped him down on a cot. I wonder what they thought when the roof started coming. hurricane country, you might see that for yourself, but us that live in same locale, we never see stuff like that. Amen. The roof started coming off. And when they dropped this man down, they knew what it was. And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus leaned over and said, your sins be forgiven you. You know what the Pharisees that were there started saying? This is blasphemy. Let me say now, you cannot blaspheme a person. You can only blaspheme God. You may slander somebody. You may, you may commit libel, but you can't blaspheme a human being. You can only blaspheme God. They said, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God? And they were right. It wasn't blasphemy, but they were right. Only God could forgive sins. That's something that God reserves for himself. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, hey, he perceived their heart. He said, which one's easier to say? Your sins be forgiven. You're to take up your bed and walk. They're both impossible with you. Humans can't do that, but God can. God can. God can. They didn't see him. They were, they were seeing a little bitty God. They saw a God way off. They couldn't see a God up close. So we take up your bed and walk and he received strength. Picked up his bed and walked out. It made a man. There's some folks you can't please in this world, isn't it? Made a man. Amen. They never saw him for what he was. That God overshadowed the Virgin Mary. And for 33 and a half years, God dwelt with us. Amen. God, I had a man tell me one time, the Bible doesn't say that God was manifest in the flesh. I said, are you sure about that? He said, oh, it's not there. I said, are you positive? He said, oh, I've looked in my Bible. It's not there. Well, let me 
introduce you to the scripture that says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. In the person of Jesus Christ was all we would ever see of God in the flesh. In the person of Jesus Christ was that invisible God that became visible. And for 33 and a half years, we could touch him and hear him and feel him. He was man. And then he committed the greatest act on earth. He died on the cross and saved us all. His own disciples didn't see him as he was. If you got a revelation today, you need to thank God every day that you got a revelation. Amen. His own disciples. Oh, yeah, they went out on the boat and Jesus went to sleep and they got in a storm and they began to fear for their life and they ran down there in a panic. Jesus, we're going to die. Help us, Lord. No, you were going to faint. And he stood up on the deck of the boat and said, Peace be still. The waves abated and the wind stopped. You know what they said? What manner of man is this? That even the waves and the wind obey his voice. They were standing on the shore. They couldn't see that God that's greatest he was. Amen. They were walking with him. They saw him as a man. And he was part man. But there was a side of Jesus that was far above any man. Far above. He could say, peace be still. And when that happened, they were startled. They, they, they couldn't grasp it. They didn't have a revelation. I can figure that out. The same one that created the winds in the first place can stop it. The ones that made the ocean in the first place, he can stop the sea. Amen. Are you glad you know God today? Are you glad you have a revelation? My God in heaven. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Hallelujah. In Isaiah, let me read some scriptures here. Isaiah 43, these are some of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. Bring forth the, the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say it is true. In other words, prove what you believe or shut up and listen. That's what it says as far as I'm concerned. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. And there is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. And then that God became this God, and they were the same God. And then you don't have to pray to God for a while to keep him from getting jealous. And then pray to the Son for a while, you know, so that he don't get upset. What tomfoolery. Amen. That's the same God. Amen. God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest. Amen. That incarnation came. He died on the cross. He didn't become a part. You know, I went to the Vatican, and in the part of the Vatican called the Stanzi, a great Renaissance artist by the name of Raphael painted a picture of the Trinity. I was always curious to see what it looked like. So I got to see. Man, they had young guy sitting on a throne had cut in the side nail prints in his hand so we presume that's Jesus and he had uh, a fellow on his right that was John, no excuse me on the left John the Baptist had his mother there, Mary's on the right and above him was an old man with a long white beard and at his feet was a dove I 
That's God. Let me tell you something. If you're good and you get to go to heaven, let me tell you what you're going to see. You're going to see one that, as if it had been slain, sitting on a throne. And we're going to gather around and for millions of years, we're going to join that celestial choir and sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Are there any gods before me? Will there be any after me? No, I know not any. Amen. I, even I, am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. And let me tell you, now, now this, I'm going to bring this to a close here in a minute. But I want to emphasize how important this is because this knowledge of God is fundamental to your relationship with God. This understanding of the oneness is fundamental to your relationship with God because how can you please someone or serve someone if you don't know who they are? If you have a fault, this whole business that is just semantics, one and three and three and one, is not the truth. You've got to understand who he is. Amen. There's no message I could preach or any other preacher could preach more important than the oneness of the Godhead. And I'm afraid we don't hear it enough nowadays. I'm afraid that the, the importance of it and, and the, the, the immediacy of it has slipped from us. Amen. There's nothing I could say. There's nothing I have said this week more important than this, that there's only one God. And we need to believe in that one God. We need to rejoice in that one God. We need to worship that one God. If you don't believe in one God, you've got a limited God. If you don't, if you don't know one God believer, you really don't know God in His fullness and power. This is essential to us. That's why Jesus said, except you believe that I am He, you die in your sins. What He is He talking about? When He said, except you believe that I am He, what He? Good God? Good teacher? A moral example? Oh no, you've got to believe that I am He. You've got to believe that I am He. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh, died for the sins of the world. And when you hear the voice of God, Jesus, you're hearing the voice of God. When you worship Jesus, you're worshiping God. Amen. When we go to heaven, we're going to see Jesus sitting on the throne. We're going to see Jesus sitting on the throne. He is the embodiment of God, the embodiment. He's the prism that God used to shine the light into the world. Amen. And he broke this truth down in ways that we could see. Amen. Amen. And when we don't get this, when we don't get this, we lose some strength that we should otherwise have. I'm telling you, in my ministerial experience, which isn't all that short anymore, I've been preaching 45 years, it's a rare thing for someone that has a deep and abiding revelation of the one of the Godhead to ever quit church. There's something about it that buttresses you and strengthens you like nothing else. When you dig down and build your theological house upon the rock, when the winds come and the rains blow, we have come down. Uh, nothing stops you because you're built on a rock of revelation that cannot change and be altered. Amen. So young people, you need to pray. And I was 15 when I started getting a revelation. And I was born and raised in apostolic church. I cut my teeth on the pew. That's all I've ever known. But I didn't have a revelation. And I got the Holy Ghost and I didn't have a revelation. When I was about 15, brother, I started studying the Bible. And I didn't even start out with that, but I started seeing scriptures. And, man, 
with the God was in Christ. And I've heard Brother Terry preach on it a thousand times. You know, if you're not careful, it'll go in one ear and out the other. Like I'm afraid it's happening today. I heard it, but I didn't hear it. I heard it, but I didn't hear it. I had ears to hear, but I wasn't hearing it. But when I started reading that, I saw that. I think that was the one that really got me. For with the God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. For with the God was in Christ. God was in Christ. Not separate, not different. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And I think it was right there that I got my eyes above the horizon. bigger than six miles away. There's more to him than just the baby in the manger. There's more to this than just the name that we sing about him on songs. Oh no, there's something here. God was in Christ. To with the God was in Christ. And it started opening up to me. I remember telling Brother Terry, man, I found a good scripture, Brother Terry. Have you ever read the one that said, to with the God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself? He said, yeah, I read that a while back. I've even preached on it a few times. All right, have you really? You preached on this? Oh, you know, it's possible to hear, but not hear. I said, well, how about the one that says, there's only one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Have you preached on that too? Yeah, I preached on that too. Yeah. That's not that rich, is it? That's full, that's powerful. I was getting a revelation. I was getting a revelation. And when you get it, when you get it, when you dig down and build your house on this rock, a revelation, hallelujah. Isn't that what he told the apostle Peter? On this rock, I'll build my church. On this rock, I'll build my church. What rock? That you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That rock. That rock. Amen. And when you get this, you get this. It's just easier to come to church. It's just easier to live for God. It's easier to obey your pastor. And everybody needs to obey their pastor. Everybody needs to obey their pastor. Amen. There's nothing but good pastors in this place. There's no excuse for anybody sitting here not to obey the voice of their pastor. We don't have a bunch of liberal nitwits here. Amen. These are good apostolic conservative men. There's no excuse, kids, for you not to obey your pastor. I had a girl at my church ask me if she could start dating someone in a neighboring church. And it was a good church, and I had nothing against it. And, and uh, I said, I will let you start dating this guy under one provision. She said, what is it? I said, if I tell you to quit. I'm not in love with the guy at all. My clear is my eye is clear on him. My my perspective of him is fine. It's it's hers that's distorted. Amen. One provision. You got a good pastor. You need to get on your knees and thank God that there's somebody in your life that's looking out for your welfare. This isn't about me and what I want. I'm looking out for the welfare of this young woman, a girl in my church. She's 18 or 19, and there's no vulnerable age. This is one of the ironies of life. 
that, that when at that time of life that you have to make these drastic decisions and life-changing decisions, you're probably least capable of making wise ones. You know, in the old days, you got to pick your companions for your kids, and the older I get, the wiser I think that is. I didn't think it was all that hot when I was 20, but I think it's pretty sharp today. <laughs> and I'm happy with my daughter-in-law, and I'm happy with my son-in-law. It's not the problem. It's just that, you know, you, you sink your life, even as a pastor, into these kids, and then they start doing stupid things, and about the time they need to listen the worst, they quit listening at all. Your pastor's told you to separate yourself from somebody, it's time for you to get away. If your pastor's worried about somebody, it's time for you to sit up and listen to your pastor. If that girl marries this guy, and I, I, they, they may marry, if, if they may do fine, I'm, I'm watching it. But if she does and goes to hell, I'm going to still go on, the church is going to go on. This isn't about me, it's about her. I was at the hospital when she was born. She, I was one of the first ones that held her when she came out of the, the birthing room. I love her like a daughter. I don't want to see her fail. I love her. I want to see her be, have a good life and live for God and be saved. Hallelujah. I don't know how I got off on, on that either. But. Amen. You need to listen to your pastor. Amen. And you need to worship God. You need to love God. If you get a revelation, you know when you sing the songs, they change. Oh, that's what they're talking about. Amen. There's nothing greater. There's nothing stronger. And I'm winding down, but I've got one more, couple more things to say, and I'm going to let you go. I had a neighboring pastor. He pastored the nominal church. We got together at Starbucks, I think, one night. And uh, it wasn't on purpose. It was an accident. And uh, I don't belong to the ministerial alliance. I was invited about 20 years to join, 20 years ago to join, and I said, well, Lutheran pastor called me and asked me to join. I said, well, you know, we've got some problems. I don't believe in the Trinity. I believe in one God. Uh, we speak in tongues. We shout. We run around church. Uh, we baptize in the name of Jesus. We baptize in the name of Jesus. Do you know why baptism in the name of Jesus is so important? Because it ties you to this one God message. It, it, it strengthens your revelation. <laughs> Baptism in the name of Jesus and the one of the Godhead go hand in hand. Amen. I said, we baptize in the name of Jesus. Believe in one God. And so, you know, he said, well, maybe it would be best if you don't join. I said, okay. <laughs> last, I, last I heard of them. Hallelujah. I guess they X my name off the list. It's okay. Hallelujah. But uh, I sat down with this guy, and uh, he came over and introduced himself. And I was in my usual course of saying, Michelle, I'm one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. <laughs> and uh, we got talking about our prospective religions, and I won't even tell you what he is. <clears throat> he does belong to the largest Protestant denomination in America. And uh, after a while, he said, you know what the most confusing scripture in the Bible is? I said, which one is it? He said, it's the one that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, I can tell him what his problem was. He had his feet on the shore. His feet was in the sand. 
Jesus up and said 47 with me, he didn't see what that scripture means. Amen. That word, translated word is logos. In the Greek it's logos. And I'm not an expert. But I have studied the word logos and it could be translated a lot of different ways. It could have been in the beginning was the thought and the thought was with the thinker and the thought was the thinker. It could have been translated in the beginning was the plan and the plan was with the planner and the plan was the planner. It could have been translated in in the beginning was the dream, and the dream was with the dream, and the dream was the dreamer. That would all have been an accurate description of the word logos. I said, well, you know what the problem is? You got too many gods. You don't think God's big enough to fulfill this without help. In the beginning, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. Isn't that strange that they start the same? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He was with God in plan and purpose and direction and salvation, but he was God. He was God. God did send that child into the earth, but that child wasn't a separate entity. Oh, no. Inside of that baby was God. That was God manifest in the flesh. And there is a theological discussion about whether Jesus had his own personality. And one of these preachers want to talk about after church, I'm more than ready and willing and able. But we do know he had God in him. We do know he had God in him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God. Amen. And uh, I'm going to close with this. Stand. I'm going to give you hope. I was driving through Indianapolis several years ago, two or three years ago. That was Timmy. I was preaching back there for somebody. Can't remember who right now, but I was back there on business, as it were, and uh, we were caught in traffic. And, uh, I did something I almost never do. I turned the radio into a religious station. I get too frustrated listening to these radio preachers. They drive me crazy. I can't hardly read a religious book. I mean, I get into it. I got 12 books in my, in my library that's about a third of the way read. And so I get about a third of the way down the road, and they start talking about God the Father talking to God the Son, and the Holy Ghost comes up, and they three discuss this situation. It's like, what do you know? I just shut the book. They don't know who God is, and how can they know anything? How can they know anything? Anyway, this guy was, this guy was talking about theology, and he began to teach, believe it or not, on the doctrine of the Trinity. And so I turned the radio up. I wanted to hear what he had to say. Because it's fun to see him flounder around, you know. Try to somehow make one three and three one and all the other machinations that we do. You know, read the Athanasian Creed sometime. There's only one God. That one God is, this is what the Athanasian Creed say. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. But that don't mean there's three gods. There's God the Father, God the Son. But that's not three gods, that's one. No wonder they, how do they pass mass? You know? But he was going to describe the Trinity. So I listened real close. And it was the usual stuff. And But at the end, he said the most interesting thing. He said in closing, let me say this, that if you think you understand the Trinity, then you don't understand the Trinity. And if you don't think that you understand the Trinity, then you do. 
not joking. He said, if you think you understand the Trinity, you don't. But if you think you don't understand the Trinity, you do. What a pitiful state of affairs. And then we know our Redeemer. We know who we serve. We know his ways. We know what he loves. We know what he wants. In the world, we know who God is. Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. And we get to enjoy this great knowledge. Oh, God has blessed us. God has blessed us, young people. God has blessed us so richly. Do you understand that he's given us this truth in earthly vessels? In this clay we're living in, he's let us see into the nature of God. And of course, that's what he came for, that we might know him, that we might know him in the fullness of his power and the fellowship of his suffering. It's wonderful that we have a revelation. It's wonderful. you got to have it. you got to have it. If you don't have it, you die in your sins. You die in your sins. I've had people come to my church who want to be baptized. I will not baptize somebody until I can talk about why Jesus' name baptism is important and why we don't baptize in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I won't do it. I want them to know. If just baptism was efficacious, we'd be justified in forcing people to be baptized. Find somebody out on the street, walk down the street, put a gun in their back, drag them into the church, baptize them for their own good, whether they like them or not. That would do any good. The name becomes powerful in knowledge. Oh, when we know the name of Jesus, when we know who he is, and we say, Jesus, I believe that in heaven, God's ear catches that certain note. Somebody, somebody called me that knew me. I went to a store one time to buy a rocking chair. My wife was expecting my first baby. We were going to get married. We were going to train her, evangelize her. Tulsa, Oklahoma, Brother Jerry Johns, some of you know him, and uh, how domestic he was on the old Bible trailer. We wanted one that folded up because the trailer was small and it had limited space and blah, blah, blah. And so we went over to this, this little furniture store across the street from the church and we were walking up and down the aisles looking for things and looking at rocking chairs and a woman walked up behind my wife and I and said, hello there, Ray Brown. She said, I know you. I said, were you, were you raised in Bakersfield, California? She didn't look at me, started, but you never can tell now. But 